Have you ever heard of the Rockite Rebellion? The mythical Captain Rock, no? Nor had I until today's interview. Stay tuned, it's a bit niche, but if you love the nitty gritty of British military history, or you're fascinated by the Irish struggle, then this is the episode for you. Hi guys, and welcome back to Redcoat History, the place for military history geeks like you and I. If you like this episode, then please like and subscribe and comment, as it will help others to find these long-forgotten tales rescued from the dustbin of history. Today, I'm joined once more by historian Chris Bryce to discuss Sir Hugh Gough. Chris has written a book on Gough that can be purchased from helion.co.uk. You can get a 20% discount code by putting in LION2020 at checkout. That's L-I-O-N 2020, all capital letters. If you watched or listened to the first episode in this short series, then you will have heard Chris argue that Gough, who commanded the 87th Royal Irish Fusiliers in the peninsula, was the best British battalion commander of that campaign. But what happened to him after the war? Let's find out. Well, it's interesting because obviously he was with the 2nd Battalion of the 87th, as, as we explained in the last interview, and after the Napoleonic Wars, obviously there was underst quite understandably a dramatic reduction in the size of the British Army. And a lot of the second battalions that had been raised for the conflict, vast majority of them were disbanded. And so in 1817, early 1817, the uh, second battalion of the 87th is disbanded. Um, after that, Gough goes on to half pay for about two years. Um, and I think there's a um, there's sort of a, a presumption of him as a fighting colonel. You know, he's a wartime colonel. Um, he he has by now just after in 1815 he got his promotion to half colonel. I mean, he'd been acting half colonel, but he became lieutenant colonel in uh, 1815. Same time he got his knighthood again yeah. for services during the Peninsula and the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and so. He's out of he's out of work for a couple of years. You know he's on half pay, um, and then he gets uh, appointed to the twenty second, which are the, the Cheshires, which um, are a county regiment that had a, a long tradition. Um, the eighty seven recently disbanded, weren't they? Not too many well, years. Two thousand and seven. Yeah, yeah. I think they were really sort of like the last of the county regiments. Yeah. Uh, certainly one of the last. Might even have been the last. Uh, so they had a very long history. Uh, very proud history. They were good, and I mean this in a nice sense. This, they were a good, solid county regiment. They were a good, reliable uh, county infantry regiment. Um, yeah. In some ways, perhaps this was a little bit of a step up for him in terms of prestige from the 87th, who were somewhat newer and you know perhaps had a very good fighting reputation, but perhaps didn't have the prestige level of the 22nd. Although you have to say the 22nd had sat out most of the Napoleonic Wars. Um, they'd been in Mauritius for nine years. In fact, they were only just returning when in 22, uh, in, no, in 1819, sorry, uh, Gough was uh, appointed their commander. And they do a bit of garrison duty for a while. They're in Northampton, they're in Newcastle, upon Tyne, they're in Liverpool, and then they're sent over to Ireland. Um, and this is the time of, as I think we, we've alluded to before, that the Rockite Rebellion. Um, now, this is when you look at previous rebellions, they've been more about 
in Ireland, they've been more about independence. They've been influenced by the ideals of the American Revolution, the French Revolution. They're looking for an independent Ireland, basically. The Rockite Rebellion and is more really about the here and now rather than principles. It's more about the fact that in the 1820s, post-Napoleonic Wars, there is a dramatic fall in agricultural prices because obviously there's been a huge demand for uh, grain, corn, all sorts of supplies for the, for the armies fighting you know, the Napoleonic Wars. That's now completely vanished. Prices plummet. Um, to farmers in Ireland who were having a, a reasonably decent time because they were earning a little bit more money because of this, not a huge amount by any stretch of the imagination, but a little bit more, uh, this is a hammer blow. Um, and it's a really difficult time. And we get this sort of rebellion against agricultural prices, against the corn laws, um, against things like... Uh, basically like the, the landowners in general. Um, and it's called the Rockite Rebellion because there's this semi-mythical character called Captain Rock, uh, occasionally self-promoted to General Rock. Um, and there, more than, rather than being just one person, there are a number of people um, who assume the mantle of Captain Rock. And what, what it tended to be was that each area had their sort of their own Captain Rock. Um, and we're talking about really, this is only really a rebellion in sort of like Cork, uh, County Cork, southern border of County Limerick as well. Um, and it's a really more than anything, it's it's a sort of like a nuisance thing. There's, um, there's the burning of, uh, of haystacks. There's the burning of thatch roofs, there's the, the you know, killing of livestock, etc. Um, but then there are some far more serious um, incidents as well, um, some fairly unpleasant things. Um, there's an incident that's quite well known with the, uh, with the rifles who were, were serving, uh, the rifle brigade by this time, who were serving in, in Ireland and their uh, baggage train and the, the rives were moving through the countryside when they were attacked by rockites. And the rockites, um, they separated the Catholic wives from the Protestant wives, and the Protestant wives were quite brutally gang raped. Oh, um, there were some, you know, and there was no one's going to say for a minute that this was all one-sided and there was never anything, reprisals or anything from the British. But a lot of what the Rockites were doing in many ways started to alienate the, the local people themselves. Yeah. Um, they were, oft, as is often the case in any sort of insurgency like this, it's the local people who suffer from all sides and all directions. Um, Goff takes a very, <clears throat> very important role in this. He's almost, he's the senior military man on the ground, basically. So at times he's not only commanding the 22nd, uh, he's commanding the 11th foot, 40th, uh, 57th, 42nd Rifle Brigade, as I say, and some cavalry, third, uh, no, third Light Dragoons and the 6th Dragoon Guards, I believe. 
Um, so would so it be fair got, to say this is his kind of first serious independent command? Absolutely. Yes, it is. Um, <clears throat> but it's a very unusual command in the sense that he's very much fighting an insurgency. It's a counter-insurgency counter operation. So rather than having all his forces together, I mean, that sounds a very impressive little you know, army, isn't it, really? But they're distributed over the, the countryside. So you've got sort of normally in sort of like 10 to 30 men detachments yeah. um, will be spread around there. Goff himself commanded sort of a, a flying force, I suppose, in, in many ways yeah. that could go to a particular area if there was a serious threat. What well, um, we would actually call like, now a QRF, like a quick reaction force. In a sense, yes, yeah. Um, and really, I mean, I think it's more like a fighting reserve as much as anything that, that could just be moved in. And there's one period, there's one occasion very late in the sort of the rebellion where Goff himself actually leads a charge, you know, sword, sword in hand um, against the Rockites. Um, and one of the things with, with the Rockites are that they're very poorly armed. The leadership isn't actually too bad. There's, there's quite a, a concerted leadership and control for a period. Um, but there's a real shortage of firearms. So most of them are armed with agricultural implements, really. Um, and this is actually, you know, there's an interesting point and something Goff supports and helps to enforce um, is that there's a local ordinance passed that makes it a crime not to secure your firearm. So in an individual house, if you haven't got your guns locked up, technically it, it, it's against the law. Uh, and the reason for this is that the Rockites would regularly break into houses. They'd leave the silver, they'd leave the money, they'd go for the firearms because they really needed them. You know, And the problem was as well, yes, they could take the silver. Well, even if they could sell it, which would be difficult, um, they had no real way of buying weapons other than on a, a very limited black market because the British controlled the arms trade. So it's a very difficult um, operation for the Rockheads. And the fact they kept it going for the number of years they did is, is quite dramatic and, and, and surprising in that sense. Um, one of the things Goth does, it's not just, you see for the first couple of years, first 18 months, he's really about protecting, uh, he's on the defensive, he's protecting the lands, he's protecting the people. Then sort of for the last 18 months or so, he goes on the offensive. He starts trying to confront the Rakhites. But it's not just a military solution. Um, there's obviously, there's the, there is a hearts and minds element to it. I'm not sure necessarily Goff would have seen it as that. I think a lot of what he did was more what he saw as his Christian duty. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a very strong religious element to Goff's life which, you know, permeates through everything he does. And um, there's a period where he gets the emergency food supplies brought down from Dublin and distributed freely to the populace, which obviously wins him a lot of, you know, a lot yeah. of praise, a lot of support. Um, but the real turning point um, is that at one stage, they start capturing uh, the leaders, People who have been identified. There's a guy called um, uh, Nagel. Well, actually, there's two 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 Nagel brothers, and Goff personally captures one of the Nagel brothers. Um, oh, really? He himself. He he, he himself in, in command of a, a number of um, a number of soldiers. Um, he, just he, a, he just can't stop himself from being at the front, no, can he? No, as I said, that's that one. But 
as I mentioned earlier, he, he led a, a charge, and it was during that charge that they captured uh, Philip Nagel. Uh, now, Philip Nagel was a relatively senior member of the Rakhite Rebellion, but more, far more importantly, he was the brother of David Nagel, and through Philip, they got to David. Um, David Nagel was one of the people who has been clearly identified as, as, captain, as a Captain Rock. Um, I suppose I should just quickly mention as well, you know, anyone who's interested in this Rockite Rebellion, there's an excellent book and there's an excellent amount of research by um, an American historian called James S. Donnelly Jr., who actually wrote a book called Captain Rock. And uh, he's, he's an excellent source of, of, of information. Um, I, I got a lot of my links to the archives through him, you know, saw them in his book. And then when I was over in Ireland, I, I popped into the archives and, and had a look myself to see what was there. Brilliant. Um, and so Captain Rock is one of the people that Donnelly identified. Uh, sorry, Nagel is one of the people who, Cap, who James Donnelly identifies as Captain Rock or one of the Captain Rocks. And he basically is persuaded to turn King's evidence um, and from a letter, uh, uh, some correspondence I've read, which is the National Army Museum, seems very clear that Goff basically was able to persuade Nagel that um, if you turn King's evidence, I can save you from the gallows. Uh, and indeed he did. Um, so Goff plays a really important part in this, and it's not just military. Yeah, um, it this sounds is... like he was uh, an early adopter of sort of classic counterinsurgency counterinsurgency tactics yes yeah i mean you know whether he deliberately did this or it just sort of fell into that way as this is the way to solve it who knows but it is a remarkable little period it's completely forgotten and you get a good insight into goth here um you know you you see that he is he does have a lot of capability in in things like this that um he can think about wider policies he can deal with the sort of, you know, the semi-political side, the civil-military relations side, which is something he gets criticised for. Um, but you can see that, you know, clearly he, he does have capability in that, in that regard. So, you know, it's, it's a very important little um, period in his life. And at the end of the rebellion, uh, when things are sort of died down, um, there's a lot of thanks going around for, for golf. Um, but his time with the 22nd um, comes to an end. Oh, I'm, I'm trying to think when it is. I think it's about 18. Yeah, I think it's August 1826. Um, he, his time in command of the 22nd comes to an end because they've been posted to the West Indies. And as we spoke about in the previous interview, the West Indies Come on, were not a place to go to the West Indies. <laughs> not a place to be uh, for, you know, conducive with good health. And particularly at that period, um, his wife, uh, Francis Goff, is very ill for a long, long period of time. Um, really never, never really gets better until the day, you know, for the rest of her life. Um, and she has, uh, you know, serious illness and it there was no way she could have gone to the West Indies. So Goff would have faced the choice of leaving his wife behind and going out there for a number of years. And really, it wasn't what he wanted to do at that time in his life. Um, so he takes the decision not to accompany them, but um, obviously it's a, it's, a, um, it's a difficult decision for him to, um, 
to make because was really in many ways it means that he's, he's out of uh, employment and he actually remains out of uh, military employment for 11 years. 11 years a long period pay. of time. Yeah, 11 years on, on half pay, he basically retires to his estate, becomes sort of like a, a country gentleman in Ireland. Um, takes, <clears throat> takes the role of a local magistrate as well and does various things. But really, yes, he's out of, perhaps in his prime years, he's, he's out of employment uh, for 11 years. Things are not helped by the fact that in 1830, he's promoted to major general. And whilst there might be posts uh, for colonel he could fill, there's fewer that, for that rank of major general. Um, and he's out of employment for a long time. Um, there is just one thing, I think, just after he's left the 22nd, which I will mention briefly, and I go into a lot more detail in the book. Um, there was a court of inquiry set up in December 1828 into the 22nd foot. And part of what they were looking at was Goff's time in command. And what they were really looking at were financial irregularities. Basically, there'd been a lot of falsifying of enlistment dates so that pensioners at the Chelsea Hospital were getting paid more than they should have been. Uh, it came to light when they saw someone's, um, I don't know, birth certificate, but age of birth, basically, and realized that he'd have had to have joined the army at the age of seven to have got in the length of service he was being paid a pension. Not, not totally unrealistic, given Not the totally unrealistic, but, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, you know, it wasn't the case. And there were any, they, that led to them looking into other ones and more and more they found out that there were you know, huge discrepancies here. Um, now, there were other things as well. There was the falsifying of bills. For example, they, they, they'd present a bill in the account saying that they'd sent the muskets off to be revarnished and to be worked on, etc. But they'd do it in-house. But they'd put a bill in the accounts for however much. You know. There's all sorts of shenanigans going on. Um, there was never any suggestion that Gough was party to this. Um, the problem was, as the colonel, he had signed off on the account books. Um, but, you know, we all know the thing, you know, he, he would have just been presented with something to sign. And he would have signed it. People yeah. in, in authority have done that for generations. Um, Especially a fighting man like him who probably sees paperwork as a bit below him, perhaps. Well, I think so. Um, I mean, let's not forget he had been an adjutant himself at one stage. So, you know, th there is an element to that. But yes, I, I think, <laughs> I think, yes, he would. It's not what wasn't something he really wanted to do. Um, the Court of Inquiry names various people. Um, the second in command during Goff's time, Major, the wonderfully named Major Jasper Craster. Um, what a great name. We, don't, we just don't make names like that anymore, no. do they? Sounds like it should come out of a novel, doesn't it? It really should. Um, he, he takes a lot of the blame. And I think reading between the lines, the inquiry would have liked to have blamed him far more than it was able to. Um, I think he is probably the driving force behind a lot of this. The adjutant, Captain Edwards, obviously takes a lot of the flack, as you'd, you'd uh, understand. But there's, there's rather this element of them going down the line in terms of rank blaming each other. You know, Major Craster blames Captain Edwards. Captain Edwards uh, blames uh, Sergeant, um, Sergeant Church. Uh, Sergeant Church blames Private Duckworth. 
Um, and poor old Private Duckworth has no one left to blame. Yeah. Um, what is it they say? Crap rolls downhill. <laughs> well, very much, yeah. Um, and, and Duckworth, strangely enough, for a private soldier, must have been an educated man because he was the man who actually wrote the accounts. You know, didn't work them out. He, he had good penmanship and he was actually asked to write the account books. Um, and, you know, very easy to then blame him and say, oh, you know, he falsified the accounts. Well, I don't believe he did. And I don't think the Court of Inquiry believed he did. Um, but there is an element to, you know, Goff basically, the only criticism attached to Goff is basically really he should have kept more of an eye on this. He was the, the man, you know, who should have seen it. He was the final authority within the uh, in the regiment. Um, you know, it, it's harsh, but understandable. Um, and it's understandable from all angles. It's understandable that Goff wouldn't necessarily have looked into this too closely, but it's also understandable that he has to take some of the blame. Um, and so, you know, I don't know whether that plays any part in the fact that it's a long time before he gets another appointment. Whether that's a stain on his character or reputation, I don't know. I'm not convinced it is, actually, personally, because some of the people on that court of inquiry were very senior members of the army. And I've seen their correspondence where really they're saying, well, you know, Goff didn't really do anything wrong. You know, there was nothing really... Yes, perhaps you should have kept a closer eye on it. There's almost a sort of sense saying to each other, but we've all done that. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm not quite sure how much you can blame Goff for what went on during that period. But, yeah. you know, it may have had an effect on the fact that he didn't get a command uh, for a long time. And it's not until 1837 uh, that Goff receives the appointment um, as a as the commander of the Mysore Division of the Madras Army. That was fascinating, wasn't it? A history lesson for me today, that's for sure. Let me know in the comments or via my website, redcoathistory.com, if you like this sort of story. The small niche conflicts as opposed to the big well-known battles. In the next episode, that should be out in two weeks, I hope, Chris will take us through Goff's performance in China and then in the Anglo Sikh Wars. You really don't want to miss those episodes, so make sure you subscribe. Until then, take care, guys.